1: Afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer weekend review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Nimer. A new landmark study will change the way heart disease is treated and as we head into the season of giving, how to make sure your donations have the most impact. But first here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Lawyers arguing for a two-tier health care system in British Columbia began their closing arguments this week. They say patients should be allowed to take control of their own health with their wallets. The lead plaintiff in the case, who owns a private clinic, says the court challenge is about giving patients options when faced with unreasonable wait times for diagnostic and surgical services. Advocates for public health care argue a two-tier system would only benefit the wealthy. A married couple from New Jersey donated their kidneys to total strangers. 60-year-old Cheryl Cohen and 56-year-old Frank Kimchik are hoping to inspire others to do the same life-saving act. A decade ago, Cheryl's brother received a life-saving heart transplant that extended his life By nearly a decade. Both say the recovery process was easy and they returned to their normal life just days after their operations. In the U.S., there are more than 100,000 people on the kidney transplant waiting list. In Canada, almost 3,000 are on the list. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Paul McCartney sang about being 64. He's now a youthful 77, which begs the question, is 70 the new 65? Yes, says the Office for National Statistics in the UK. Although 65 is the traditional start of old age when pensions kick in, experts say with an aging and healthy population, maybe it's time to rethink this. In 1951, 60-year-olds could expect to live another 15 years. It shifted to age 65 in the 90s, and now people in their 70s can expect another 15 years. That number will rise again to 75 in 2057. The notion that chronological age no longer decides what old looks like is long-held philosophy here at Zoomer Media. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is back on the Supreme Court bench after missing time last week with what the court described as a stomach bug. The 86-year-old has been treated for cancer twice in the past year, including receiving radiation for a tumor on her pancreas over the summer. She missed court sessions in January during her recovery from lung cancer surgery. Those were her first absences from court arguments in a quarter of a century as a justice. Happy anniversary to Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, who this week celebrated 72 years of marriage. She was 21 and the Duke was 26 when they tied the knot in 1947. Philip, now 98, retired from public duties in 2017. Although the Queen was heir apparent at the time of her marriage, she still had to buy her wedding dress with ration coupons. And on her wedding day, her tiara famously snapped, and a jeweler was rushed to Buckingham Palace to fix it in time for the ceremony. I'm Libby Zimmer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. There's important new research that will change the treatment for thousands of patients with blocked coronary arteries. The work found that bypass surgeries and stents are no more effective than medication in preventing heart attacks and deaths. I talked with cardiologist Dr. Vlad Javik from the Toronto General Hospital's Peter Monk Cardiac Center. Approximately how many patients get stenting or bypass surgery and does that mean that a lot of those have been unnecessary?
2: It's hard to tell whether they were unnecessary. So I would say probably uh, approximately 15,000, 16,000 patients perhaps in Ontario alone uh, would have stent procedures every year and approximately and, and probably the number for bypass would be Somewhat less uh, significantly less, but those are the kind of numbers we 're talking about, so were any of them necessary so again, important to remember that the stenting does improve quality of life, so it offers better freedom from angina from chest pain with exertion, and that was that was pretty clear in the study. The more of the symptoms that the patients had, that they had, the better these procedures actually protected them from that so to answer your question, are there some procedures that are necessary? Quite possibly. And I think there's, this gives us the comfort and really the, um, the knowledge that if you don't do these procedures on these patients, that they're going to be okay. They're not going to be at high risk of dying or dropping dead or uh, having heart attacks. They do just as well with medical therapy if you can stabilize them, if you can settle them with, with medication as they do with uh, stenting or or bypass surgery.
1: Do you consider this to be a landmark study?
2: There's no question it's a landmark study. It's going to change practice, I, I would hope. So I think clinicians, doctors, are going to be much more comfortable in doing, for example, a CT angiogram or even an angiogram, even the kind of angiogram, traditional angiogram that we've been doing, a contrast angiogram where we actually access the blood vessels with catheters, but then stopping. And offering patients actually giving the information, listen, this is this is where we're at. This is where your blockages are. You're pretty well treated with medications right now. Your symptoms are good with medications. Uh, we can stay with medical therapy for now. Or if they're not happy, if the patient, if the person's not happy with the level of activity they're able to do because they are getting chest pain or shortness of breath, and they're on optimal medical therapy, which means maximum medication for what they can tolerate. And some people can't, people can't tolerate a lot of medication or even any medication. So those patients can, can be offered the stent procedure if that's the appropriate based on their anatomy or bypass surgery if that's what's appropriate because they have severe complex anatomy that's better treated with bypass surgery. One of the important components of the, of the study was to study the quality of life of patients. And and there are specific questionnaires and specific studies that are done to look at that, the frequency of angina, uh, which means chest pain that's, that's attributable to blockages in the arteries or shortness of breath. So patients rec- uh, who were treated with either the stent or the operative procedures required fewer medications and were more free from from these that are sometimes disabling symptoms so so that is a, that that's an important component so it doesn't mean that stents and operations are useless doesn't mean that at all all it means is that depending on how the patient's doing there are options that can be considered uh, at some point also somebody who was treated with medicines only their narrowings, their blockages could progress. So they could still return to have that kind of a procedure, whichever is the most appropriate stent procedure or bypass surgery.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Javik.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: That was cardiologist Dr. Vlad Javik. The holiday season is also prime time for charitable giving. But do you know how much impact your donations have? Or how many cents on the dollar actually go to the cause after administration and other costs? Charity Intelligence has done the research on 750 Canadian charities. I sat down with Managing Director
3: Kate Bain. We do the financial analysis. We can tell donors and Canadians how much is spent on fundraising, how much is spent on administration. And we produce the list. These are the top 100 highest rated charities. And then we're looking at charities that deliver the biggest bang for the buck. How do you measure impact? When you measure a charity's impact, you're looking at the entire charity. You're looking at each of its different programs And you are putting a value on the social service it produces. Now, some charity programs work better than others, and some programs produce more benefit than others. So it's similar to a cost-benefit analysis. You see how much money a charity is spending, and you weigh that relative to the benefits it is producing. So that gives you an impact of this is a high-impact charity, this is a good impact charity, all this is a fair impact, all this is low impact.
1: You have your top 10 impact charities. Number one is Against Malaria Foundation, which is international, and then you have one that caters to homeless
3: youth. So what makes these charities so special? So when you look at the programs they run, and if you look at Against Malaria, it's doing a very cheap program. It is distributing these mosquito nets, and that is a proven evidence-based way to stop people from dying. It's very cheap and it's very effective. Therefore, it has high impact. Some of your ratings confused me a little. The most important thing at Charity Intelligence is the stars for the ratings. So we have those star ratings. So uh, we we give 15% of the charities we rate can be four stars. So when a donor sees a four-star charity, that should be a mark that this charity has been vetted and across all measures it's one of the top performing charities. Then there's
1: the issue of the sectors. I mean, for instance, I want to donate to cancer charities. Uh, there weren't cancer charities on your list. There was there was one actually. It was Bladder Cancer Canada, which is a charity
3: that our Jane Brown supports. But that was the only one, and it's very small. What we're seeing in the healthcare sector particularly is there are some rich charities and some poor charities. Some charities are fundraising because they can, not because they have an immediate need for donations. So where we see a charity having more than three years of cash in the bank, relative to what it spends each year on its programs, that's where we would take away a star.
1: But isn't it true, kind of a make hay while the sun shines? I mean, it takes a lot of marketing and awareness for a charity to get on people's radar, and and shouldn't
3: they capitalize on that while they can? Yes, and, 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 and they do. And so much of what we give in Canada, of the $16 billion we give each year, is based on brand, is based on marketing. It's based on who's got the biggest megaphone, who's doing the most advertising, who's got the most fundraisers on the streets in their vests, signing up monthly donors. It's not based upon which charity is actually producing and delivering the best results for what Canada needs. So that's where the research, the analysis does come in. There are some very large charities and because of their brand, and their credibility with donors. They have been incredibly successful at raising tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. The question we would ask is, for a donor today, is it best to give money to those charities that have five, seven, ten years of funds in reserve? Or if you're giving today, is it best to give to a charity that really needs that money to keep the lights on and it can spend it on the front lines. One of the metrics you have, which is the one that I look at first, is how many
1: cents on the dollar go to programs. Do you have a benchmark that you would have us look at in terms of the costs versus the the dollar the cents on the dollar going to programs? Yeah,
3: we've always talked about what we call a reasonable range. And Canadians emailed us and called us and said, "Could you please define that reasonable range?" we have to find the reasonable range for costs to be in 5 cents to 35 cents. A lot of charities have much higher costs
1: and they say, well, if we spend more to raise more, that's a good thing. And they also say, well, sometimes we're gearing up and, and so we have a few years where our costs are a lot higher. What do you say to those explanations?
3: One of the explanations is that... Charities need to spend more on fundraising to establish their brand in the market. Yet, when you look at the charities that are spending the most on fundraising as a proportion, sort of in the 40 to 50 percent range each and every year, these are actually charities that have very well-established brands. So they aren't startups. They're not gearing up. It's happening year after year after year. A few are not spending enough, in our opinion, on fundraising administration, where you see a charity having zero cents spent on overhead, that should raise just as much suspicion with the donor. How so? In Canada, of the charities that have had their status revoked for fraud and are no longer registered charities, one of the key markers was every single one of them reported no overhead spending.
1: I saw only one charity with cents on the dollar in the 90s, and that did strike me as maybe a little too high.
3: It it can be, and it depends. I mean, food banks we see are highly cost efficient. So for food banks, you can actually see 95 cents, 85 cents going to the cause, and there's no red flags there. Anything you'd like to leave us with on this? Please, everybody, this is the giving season. We are asked by so many charities for their support. Please just give yourself time to make an informed giving decision. I hope that you will use Charity Intelligence's research as a starting point. And give yourself time so that you don't have to say yes to every charity that asks you for money. Make sure that your giving goes where your passions are and what matters most to you. Kate Bain, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much, Libby. Go to
1: charityintelligence.ca to check out the ratings on your favorite charities. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.